Well, welcome to Union Chapel. We are in a series, a message series called uh, Family and Marriage, and we've been talking about God's original intent for marriage. Last week we talked about sex after marriage. Is there sex after marriage? The answer just basically was yes. And we talked about that. I know some of you are regretful right now that you missed it. You can go online and listen to it. It might be helpful to you. And uh, so we're having a good time with this. Today, a little more sobering subject of divorce and remarriage. It is a subject that has directly or indirectly affected all of us, every single one of us. And so I want to talk about the basic premise uh, that the New Testament teaches, Jesus teaching on this subject of divorce and remarriage, so that we can get a, uh, a handle on this and a perspective that might be meaningful and redemptive. I've chosen as today's text from Mark's Gospel, chapter, chapter 10. And rather than reading from one of the classic translations, English translations, we typically read from the New International Version, I've selected a paraphrase today. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message. And his paraphrase of this passage, Mark 10, 2 to 12, really succinctly speaks in the vernacular in a very clear and definitive way about the meaning of this text and really at the root of the teaching of the New Testament on this subject. So uh, you probably don't have the message with you today. I've got my U version here that I'm going to read from, and we'll project the words on the screen for you. So as you're able, would you please stand to hear God's word? Mark chapter 10 from there he went to the area of Judea across the Jordan, and a crowd of people, as was so often the case, went along, and he, as he so often did, taught them. Pharisees came up, intending to give him a hard time. They asked, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus said, what did Moses command? And they answered, Moses gave permission to fill out a certificate of dismissal and divorce her. And Jesus said, Moses wrote this command only as a concession to your hard-hearted ways. In the original creation, God made male and female to be together. Because of this, a man leaves father and mother, and in marriage he becomes one flesh with a woman, no longer two individuals, but forming a new unity. Because God created this organic union of the two sexes, no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. When they were back home, the disciples brought it up again. Jesus gave it to them straight. If you want it straight, here it is. Jesus, Jesus gave it to them straight. A man who divorces his wife so he can marry someone else commits adultery against her. And a woman who divorces her husband so she can marry someone else commits adultery. And may God give us insight and instruction, wisdom through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. As I mentioned, divorce is something that directly or indirectly affects us all. It is a very, very painful, difficult, challenging reality in all of our lives in some way or another. Nothing in modern history has so significantly devastated our society as divorce. The breakdown of the American family tears at the very fabric of who we are as a people. It, it doesn't take much argument to see that the breakdown of the American family has caused much of our social ill. Now, having said that, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there's still a vast majority of people in America who believe in marriage. And, for example, people between the ages of 18 and 35, 87% of which believe in marriage and they intend to be married if they're not already. And 82% of them believe that their marriage will last a lifetime. That's their intention. 
And so that's really good. But we do live in an age and a day when people uh, are trying to change definitions of marriage and, and change expectations about marriage. But what we want to do is, is we want to focus on what the Word of God says. Uh, culture around us pressures the church to somehow lower our standards and compromise our definitions. But, but my, my position, and I hope yours as well, is that the breadth of the mindedness of the church should never exceed the breadth of the revelation of the Word of God. The Bible is the will of God. The, the Bible is God's Word to us. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We believe the Bible to be authoritative. Now, having said that, I found a list of uh, reasons why God created Eve. We've been talking about this whole thing from Genesis 2 now for a few weeks, and this list may be helpful to further give you perspective on why in the world God brought men and women into the world. For example, God was worried that Adam would frequently become lost in the garden because he wouldn't ask for directions. That's a reason for Eve. God knew that one day Adam would require someone to locate and hand him the remote. It's another deal. God knew Adam would never go out and buy himself a new fig leaf when his wore out and therefore would need Eve to go out and buy one for him. God knew Adam would never be able to make a doctor's, dentist, or haircut appointment by himself, thus Eve. God knew Adam would never remember which night to put out the garbage, so Eve. God knew if the world was to be populated, men would never be able to handle the pain and discomfort of childbearing, so Eve. Apparently, Adam needed, needed someone to blame his troubles on when God caught him hiding in the garden. It was her fault. <laughs> so that, that was there. Here's the, here's the final number one reason why God created Eve. When God finished the creation of Adam, he stepped back, scratched his head, and said, I can do better than that. <laughs> and all the women go crazy, yeah. And the women go wild. You're welcome. Let me put this on the screen. Two questions today that I'd like to just answer in a general way. One is, can two individuals preserve a marriage in spite of very difficult circumstances? What do you say? The answer is yes. Yeah, how many of you are in the room today? You're married, and it's a miracle of God that you are mar mar still married. I mean, seriously, you've had the power of God manifest in your life, and that's why you're still together. Thanks for not raising your hand, honey. That's a... Both hands. <laughs> Here's the second question. Can a person be divorced and marry again with God's approval? And the answer to that question is yes. Not because we feel like it should be yes. Not because people on the, on the more legalistic side of, of understanding want to hold the line. Not because people on the more liberal side of this want to relax the standards, not because of any of that, but because the Word of God gives us instruction about this important question. Can a person be divorced and marry again with God's approval? And the answer is yes. Three presuppositions today as we uh, get into the subject. First, the Word of God is authoritative. We look to the Bible as our way, as God's will for us. And so it becomes our authority. Two, God is gracious and merciful and loving. It's so important to hear that, especially if you've suffered the pain of a divorce or you've been in a family who suffered this pain. Remember that God is gracious and loving and merciful, and He's earned the right to be that in giving us His Son. Thank God. Amen? And the third thing today is that our approach is going to be gentle. Now, you will expect from me, as has, is my custom and your expectation, that I'll be forthright about these things. But our, I, but our spirit, we hope to be gentle. 
because we know this is a painful subject. And so that's the starting point. On your outline now, two things we learn from our text that we've just read from Mark chapter 10. The first thing we learn is that divorce was never in God's plan. Was never in God's plan. So you want to write that word never. It's right there. And this reality hasn't changed. The standards, the expectations, the, 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 uh, the intention, the design of God has not altered. However, in God's grace and mercy toward a fallen race, and that's the, the race we are part of, we are men and women who are, who are flawed, we fail, we make mistakes, we have weaknesses, and because we, we are a race of bruised and flawed people, second of all, B, God made an allowance. And you need the word allowance. Divorce has been allowed because of the limitations of the human heart. We read from our passage here in, in Mark 10 today that Jesus said, well, yes, Moses grudgingly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, grudgingly gave permission to divorce, but it's because of the hardness of men's heart. Now, that's an important phrase. That's a, that's a phrase that you find in the Bible from place to place, and it's an important concept, the hardness of heart. It's almost metaphorical, but, it's, but it speaks to the human condition. The heart of a person is the essence of a person. And what Jesus is suggesting here is that, that there is, in the, in, the, in the experience of the human condition, fa the fallen nature and the, the corrupt and rebellious tendency that we have as human beings in our world, that our heart becomes hard, if you will. It becomes uh, inflexible. It becomes unreceptive to God's very best intentions for us. And so Jesus is saying because of the hardness of heart, this is why folks sometimes can't remain mar married. Because best, God's best plan, God's best design, God's best intent for them can't be realized. Now it's not just in the context of marriage. A hard heart can keep you from discerning anything that God has for you. If your heart is hard and you're unreceptive and, and you're not pliable in God's hands and submitted to God's best plan, you can miss God's ideal in every category of your life. And so Jesus is saying that your hardness of heart is a key ingredient to this incapacity to, to actually be able to keep a marriage together. Now, there seem to be people, and I'm speaking now from almost 40 years of pastoral experience, there seem to be people who are incapable of receiving the kind of spirit of forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, devotion, they need to marriage. There seem to be people who are incapable of this kind of thing. Now, maybe you would push back and say, well, it's not that they're incapable, it's just they're unwilling. They just won't. They could if, but if they would, but they won't. Well, maybe, maybe that's so, but I'm not sure. In, in every case, you can make that claim. It appears to me that cases exist where the wounds are so deep and, and minds so blurred and souls so bruised that to attempt to talk to them about the possibilities of a restored marriage just isn't going to be fruitful. So again, back to Jesus' concept of the hardness of heart. Now, this is not because people are stubborn necessarily, but because their emotions over the course of time, because of circumstances of life, their emotions have become crippled, and it's just impossible for them to go on. Now, in the face of that, having said that, I want you to hear this clearly. God does not then say, well, because there, there are people who just can't seem to manage, therefore I'm going to change my expectations with regard to marriage. No, no, that's not what happens. Instead, this is what he says. Because of the incapability of the human heart, 
God has made a detoured possibility. Now, it's interesting to note also that Jesus never commends human failure. Never. Never commends human failure. He, he never compromises the divine standard. He doesn't do that. So in other words, he says, well, you know, a bunch of you just can't seem to do this. It's, this is too hard for you. It's just too much. I, and I understand it's too much. Therefore, look, it's okay. You know, all right, you, you made a mistake. You failed. And you, you fell down there. But that's, that's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, everybody gets into So it's okay. You'll never hear Jesus saying that. And he, he will never compromise the divine standard of the expectation that when you get married, you should stay married. That will never change. You'll never hear Jesus say, look, every, okay, everybody gets a trophy. If, you get a trophy for, for participation. Jesus will never say that. <laughs> so, so he never commends human failure. He never compromises the standard. And now watch this. This is the other side of it. And he never condemns people who fail. And you say, wait a minute, how can, how can that coexist? Listen, this is a capacity that you don't have, I don't have, but Jesus has. And Jesus has this capacity, and so this is really good news for us. You'll never see Jesus winking at sin and saying, well, that's okay. He'll never lower the standard, but at the same time, he's not going to condemn you just because you can't ma measure up. Now, that's an important quality that he has. Because all of us have weaknesses and failures. All of us, right? Yeah, can I get a witness? We, we all have weaknesses. And so in the face of that reality, I think it's hypocritical of the church to so often condemn a person whose particular weakness is the incapability of surviving a marriage. It's just not good. It's just it's hypocritical to me. Beth and I have a family member. And Beth, Beth's family was Roman Catholic. And she was raised Catholic. She has lots of cousins. And one of her first cousins was married. And early in her marriage, her husband left her. And it seemed rather onerous to us. I mean, you know, he, he left her. It shocked her. They had a little baby. Uh, he moved across the country away from his, his baby. He married a woman that he was in association with in his business within weeks after the divorce. You know, he just looked like a stinker to us. Uh, now, we don't know the whole story. You know, everybody's got a story. But those circumstances were horrible for this woman who's left this baby. You know, there she is. She's abandoned by her husband, and she's there by herself. And what she does is she begins to live nobly, and to her credit. I mean, she lived single and celibate for years. She raised that boy, got him all the way through school and out of school. She was a school teacher herself, and she lived, as I say, in a noble way. And some years after the divorce, I was sitting in the Roman Catholic Church with her, right beside her, at a family wedding. And the priest was going through the, the, the wedding mass, and part of that was the serving of the Eucharist. And so it's time to receive communion. And, and so the Catholics in the room began to receive communion. And I know that there are people who aren't permitted to receive communion in the Roman Church, Protestants being one of them. So I'm out, so I can't go. And so I'm sitting there and next to, to Beth's first cousin, whom we love. And there she is. This is her church. This is where she worships. This is her home. This is where she grew up. This is her church. This is her family of faith. This is her family. But she's not allowed to receive communion because she experienced this divorce many years earlier. And so we were sitting there, you know, waiting for that part to <laughs> be over because we couldn't play along. And I just, I just leaned over to her and I said, listen, you can receive communion anytime you want in my church. Table, whosoever will may come. 
Whosoever will should be welcome to the table. I just think it's hypocritical of the church to say, because you can't measure up in that category, you can't play. That's, that's not good. Are you with me with that? I just need to get that off my chest. Now watch. Jesus, now here's, I want to put a fine point. The point I want to make today is in this category. Now listen. Remember when Jesus was on the pinnacle of the temple and the devil tempted him. And the devil said to him, throw yourself off the, off the pinnacle of the temple. God will save you. And Jesus responded, he said, look, it's not right to tempt God this way. And that's, that's the correct answer to the, to the challenge, to the temptation. Now, in the, in the context of marriage then, now make the application. There's a difference between jumping off and just falling off because of circumstances. Hear the distinction. If you fall off, fall out of marriage circumstantially, you know, things happen. I didn't want, the, I didn't, I didn't want it to come to this. I, I feel bad about it. I wish it was a different story, but we just came to this impasse and I didn't know what else to do. And, and, you, and people get to that moment. That's like falling off. But for the, purpose, the person who says, I got to get out of this marriage because this one I don't like anymore, but that one over there is appealing to me. This one is old. That one is young. This one has issues. That one seems all sparkly. And so I'm going to leave this one in order to get that one. Now you're in a different category. Now you didn't fall off. Now you jumped off. And that distinction is very critically important to your understanding. Now listen, I believe it's possible for a person who is divorced, a person who's fallen off, to be restored to God's highest for their life in time. And I, and I say this not because I'm big-hearted or because there's some peer pressure or whatever, it's because this is what the Bible teaches. Here's our context and to the point. Matthew chapter 10, the Pharisees are inquiring of Jesus about this subject. Do you believe, as Moses taught, that it's okay to divorce your wife under any circumstances? In fact, that's added in a, in a context in Matthew 19 when the when this same event is recorded there. We also learn about the Pharisees in Luke's Gospel chapter 16 that the Pharisees were lovers of money and covetous, etc., etc., indicating that the Pharisees were consumers and they couldn't get enough of anything. And when you do some, some, some historical searching, you discover that the Pharisees were also processing wives on a fairly regular basis. So these guys were running through wives uh, like they were, you know, new burrows, you know, new cars or whatever. They were turning things over. They couldn't get enough. And so, and so they were writing these certif certificates of divorce based on anything. You burnt the dinner, you're out. You know, you're, your mother is annoying, you're out. And so, and so this was the pattern. This was the practice of these Pharisees. And so they come up to Jesus. Now, can you, can you, can, can you see how disingenuous they are when they ask the question? They say to Jesus, now Moses said you could divorce your wife. What do you say? And for any cause, divorce your wife. What do you say? And Jesus then says into that context, he says, yes, but it's because of the hardness of your heart. An allowance was made. Divorce was never God's intention. It was never his design. It was never his idea. But because of the hardness of your heart, and, and for some people, the incapability of maintaining a marriage, there is an allowance. There is an exception. And so he had to give into that question. But now we find, we find the, the context again. Moses, talking in 1400 B.C., giving this grudge, grudging approval, 
Jesus comes along and says, yes, he did give the grudge and approval, but it's because of the hardness of your heart. But look what happens in the interim. In 400 BC, here is the prophet Malachi who gives, sheds light onto this very point, this point I'm trying to make, this de defined point I'm trying to give to this. And he writes in Malachi 2, and this is another thing you do. And this is an indictment against the people through the prophet. He says, you cover the altar of the Lord with your tears and your weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your praying. In other words, God's not listening to your prayers. He's not blessing your life and your family. And so you moan and groan about it and you don't know why. And you say, why is this true? And he says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. So this is specifically related God's answer to your prayer, God's general favor and blessing on your life directly related to how you treat the wife or we could insert the husband of your youth, how you treat them. And he said, you've been dealing with them treacherously. She's your companion and the wife of your covenant. But, but you've, you've not done this by the Spirit. If you, in other words, he who has the remnant of the Spirit would never behave this way. And what you did, that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring. So he said, take heed. To your spirit and do not deal treacherously against the wife of your youth now what does he mean by dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth it means specifically that you're going to divorce her in order to get another one you're taking your eyes off the original wife of covenant the wife of your youth and you're putting your eyes on another wife you're divorcing her for the sp sp specific purpose of gaining the new wife and then the next phrase, for I hate divorce, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, whom, and who you cover his garments with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, you're just covering it up. You divorce your wife just to get a new one, and you pretend like it's no big deal. You just put it like it's, you put a garment over it so no one can even see it. So, so we say, well, we just grew apart, and that's the way it happened. I don't know. I just, I just need to move. I need to get on with my life. This isn't working. I... And all these verbiage that we use in our culture today, and it's precisely this point. There's nothing new under the sun. And what, and what God hates about it is the damage that it does to people. The reason God hates divorce, the reason that's in the Bible, is because divorce hurts folks. And God's against anything that hurts people. And so he said, you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth when you leave them in order to get another one. He said, that's not good. That is not right. And the blessing of God can be withheld from your life for it. And so, and so we learned the distinction here in, in, in this text. For, for this reason, then, Jesus was saying to marry a divorced person is to commit adultery. And that's what Jesus taught. He said, if you leave one in order to marry the other, you, you're jumping off, not just falling off. Then when you marry the other, you commit adultery. And that's, a, and that's a very grievous sin. Now, Jesus, watch, he was not saying that the person who suffers the pain of a, a divorce then has to live a single life the rest of their lives. He is saying if the purpose of your divorce is to take somebody else, then there was already adultery in your heart to begin with. So Jesus' comments were not the pronouncement of singleness to everyone who had suffered the agony of divorce. It was to differentiate between the motives of people who suffer this bad experience. Now, let me ask you this. What then is the response that God gives to the person? And this is exactly the case. You may be in the room today. You may be within the sound of my voice. You go, geez, that's exactly what I did. 
that's what I did. Or that's what my family member did. Or that's what my spouse did. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? Well, let me just relieve you to know that it does not mean that you're consigned to some eternal judgment because of that. But it does mean that it's incumbent now upon you when you come to your senses to repent of your sin and, and be, have an openness of that sin and to have a ter total turning away from the attitudes and the spirit that, that caused you to do such a thing to begin with. This, uh, this reconciliation and humility and brokenness must be present in a person's life. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise, but He resists the proud. So if you continue to go through your life saying, look, that's what I did, and I don't, I don't care. I, I, I'd do it again. Let's be careful. Careful with that. It's very, very serious. The truth is, so long as you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. That's the truth. You sow to the Spirit, and you'll, you'll reap eternal benefits. That's the way it works. Now, let's just take a little sidebar here try to decompress a little bit. That's pretty heavy stuff. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul expounds on this, expands on it a little bit more. And in the middle of that passage in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about singleness. And could I just say a word to single people in the room and in the church this weekend? There is great blessing that comes with singleness and celibacy. Singleness and celibacy is way underrated in our culture. There's so much pressure to conform to some kind of pairing up. And it's not a biblical expectation. In fact, what we believe is that people who live a single and celibate life actually are more honorable in their lives than people who are married because there's more grace required to live a single celibate life than there is being married because of the sexual pressure, the temptation. And so good for you. Here's what I want to put in. It's in the outline there. I want you to write this down. The single person is to be admired. Admired is the right word. You know, affirmed, esteemed. Admired. And so I want to bless those of you who are single. Now, there's some of you that you're single in the room. You have no intention of staying single. There's some people who have the grace of God. You're single and celibate, and God blesses you in that, and that's great. Some of you, though, you have expectation to be married. Your desire is to be married. Your prayer is to be married. Uh, maybe you're in that phase of life and just coming into the marriage age, and so you expect to be married. If that's your category, I, I've found a list of pickup lines for Christians. This might help you. be glad to give you a copy of this later if it might help you. For example, you might say, I just don't feel called to celibacy. You could start there. That might help. Or... Did I tell you that my great uncle was a personal friend of Billy Graham? That might get you in the door with someone. Or I don't see it myself, but people tell me I look like Michael W. Smith. That could impress someone. Or you could say, what do you think Paul meant when he said, greet everyone with a holy kiss? Of course, that could get you slapped. I don't know how that might work. I mentioned this the other week. I'll just change the names a bit. Uh, you could say, you know, you have the body of Natalie Grant and the soul of Mother Teresa. And remember, don't get those confused. Thank you for laughing. That's good. Appreciate that. Or you could say, you know, I'm really into relationship evangelism. 
That's a catchy phrase. Or you could say, I'm pretty flexible. I don't think a woman should be submissive on the first date. See, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know. <laughs> Slipping into last week. Or you could say, before tonight, I never believed in predestination. Now I do. Or how about this? Just looking at you makes me feel all ecumenical. That's catchy. Here's the last one. This is my favorite. I hear there's going to be a love offering tonight. <laughs> See? That, you can get some traction, I think, with that. All right, let's bring this in for a landing. Here we go. Here are the biblical terms. This is a summary list. This is what the Bible teaches. We could literally spend hours and days talking about the subject and all the nuances, you know, because you say, well, what about this situation? What about that attitude? And there's a, a thousand different nuances to the question. But to summarize, generally summarize this point that I've tried to make today, that there is restoration for a person who is divorced. A person who falls off, falls out of a, out of a marriage is in one category. A person who jumps off in order to marry another one, according to Jesus' teaching, that's another category. But here's the summary of terms for remarriage for the divorced believer. And it's on your outline. A, first, repent of past sins and failures. Repent. Second Corinthians 7 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance leading to salvation without regret. See, where there's a violation of the word of God in divorce, there needs to be a, a confrontation of the word of God to fulfill its requirements for restoration and preparation for another marriage. And it's not just feeling better about things. Well, I, you know, I, what I, I know I did what was wrong, it was wrong, and I, but, I, but I think I sorted it out, I feel better now. Listen, you not only need to feel better, but your conscience, listen, your conscience needs to be cleared. And recovery needs to happen in your life. And the first step to that recovery process is to repent of your sin. Uh, this whole idea of recovery has some, has some places. That you may just go through this list. It's not on your outline, but there are three words that begin with R that are important ingredients to recovery. One is repentance, which I've mentioned, godly sorrow for the failure. Ha am I truly repentant of my sin? Number two, am I making reconciliation with people who have been offended? That is, backtrack with people Maybe it's affected your children, your extended family, personal friends. There are people on the list. This business of reconciliation is an important biblical model in order to find recovery. Have you made reconciliation with people who have been offended? And the third R is, is the word restitution. Have you made restitution with the people who have been damaged? One of the great... One of the great um, Sadnesses in our culture right now is the number of deadbeat dads that exist in our culture. Men who have married women, made children with these women, and then abandoned them. Bubba, don't tell me that you're all better now if you haven't made restitution to the people you're responsible for. Because the Bible teaches that you are responsible for the decisions you make and the actions you take in life. 
And you will not be ready to engage another marriage, another relationship at a covenant level until you have made restitution with the people that you're responsible for. And don't tell me your pitiful story. Take care of your business. It's, it's always right to do the right thing. Well, I can't afford, you know, I can't afford, with my lifestyle, I can't afford. Don't tell me what you can afford and what you can't afford. You do the right thing. You make restitution. Then come and ask me about whether you're fit to be in another marriage. <laughs> Are you okay? Here's the second thing. After repentance, submit. Submit to the Word of God and godly counsel. Before you can make a major decision about your married future, bring it to godly counsel. There must be willing, a willingness to trust the timing recommended by wise counselors. I don't, I don't think that Christian people should take their, their issues of marriage to, to, the, to the world's counselors or to the world's courts. I think you should bring it, you should bring it to the church. You should bring it to wise counsel and submit to the timing and the faithfulness of God through these wise counselors. I've had this situation many times. I could tell you a hundred stories of people who did it well and people who didn't do it well. And I'm just saying submission is an important part of this process in order for remarriage. Thirdly, see, allow time and truth to bring healing to all the wounds and the severing of all the bonds of the past. So important. There are hurts from the past that must be healed. There are bonds from former relationship that need to be severed. Otherwise, you'll carry old baggage into a new relationship, further complicating the new relationship. Slow your roll. Be careful. Take your time. Trust in God's truth. And finally, D, expect. Expect to be received by and remarried in the church. <laughs> I don't know of anything more ridiculous than the idea that people can be remarried but not in the church. It's goofy. If they can appropriately be married anywhere, then they should be married in the context of the family of God. Yeah. After the steps, the terms have been carefully managed, then you'll be ready. Well, these are, these are some of the insights that I want to give you. They're foundational, and I hope will add some perspective to your journey and hope for your future because God really does love you and he cares about you, and he will meet you right where you are, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how grievous your failure. God's love will meet you where you are and take you from that point and see you to a better place, even to the place of domestic fulfillment if you trust in him. Amen? All right, let's pray for just a moment. Lord, I thank you this morning for your goodness and your grace, your mercy. Lord, we are all the beneficiaries of your mercy. Thank you. And Lord, help us to walk nobly and honorably according to your ways and according to your truth. Lord Jesus, help us then, each one, at whatever point of need we find ourselves in this most important subject, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said...